Doctor Who Forever Autumn by Mark Morris. Read by Will Thorpe. The doctor catapulted from the TARDIS, sonic screwdriver held out in front of him. He pivoted on his heels, turning a full circle. Come on, come on, he muttered. Martha Jones stepped out of the TARDIS behind him, a look of gleeful expectation on her face. When she saw she was in a backyard between a couple of smelly bins, rather than on some alien planet with pink skies and purple grass, she frowned. Is this where the signal was coming from? she asked. It wasn't a signal, he said, or a sort of splurge, a big fat splurge of power. But what kind of power? I mean, what made it so special? It was old, he said, not looking at her. How old? Oh, very, 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 very old, I'd say. Old enough to make my teeth itch. And my palms? He examined the palm of his left hand thoughtfully. Maybe I'm allergic. The sonic screwdriver didn't bleep or shine brighter or anything, but suddenly the doctor shouted, You beauty! Go on, girl! Next second he was running towards a gate in the high fence surrounding the yard, all bony knees and elbows, his spiky, tousled hair seeming to fizz with energy. Martha ran after him. So where are we? She shouted as he yanked back the bolts on the gate and threw it open. Somewhere in New England, he called over his shoulder. They followed whatever signals the doctor was getting from his sonic for maybe fifteen minutes. It turned out they had landed near the main tree-lined square of a small picturesque town called Blackwood Falls. Martha got the name of the place from a big banner strung across the main street advertising the Blackwood Falls Halloween Carnival. Even without the banner she would have guessed the time of year, simply from the profusion of window displays featuring carved pumpkins, witches, ghosts, skeletons and the like. She thought the green mist which began to envelop them as they moved out from the town centre and into the suburbs was taking things a bit too far, though. The mist was odourless, but chilly. Doctor, what is this stuff? she asked. He shrugged. One thing it's not is of this earth. It's alien, you mean? Is it sentient? Nah, it's just a by-product of the energy splurge. It's not toxic, is it? Don't think so. At least I'm not picking up anything. Three minutes later, he stopped outside the gate of a big house with a long front porch. The mist seemed to be at its thickest here, reducing the building to a dark, blocky haze. It's here, he said. In the house? Behind it. Come on. He vaulted the fence and ran across the lawn and up the side of the house, Martha in tow. She felt a tingle of excitement, wondering what marvels were in store for her this time. A dead tree, she said. Is that it? The doctor prowled around the base of the tree. He produced a pair of black-rimmed spectacles and slipped them on, then bent over to peer at something. Oh, look, he said. A hole. Martha stood beside him, wrinkling her nose. The mist might not smell of anything, but the tree or something close to it did. It was the smell of something dead. A burrow? she ventured. I'd say it's more likely someone's been digging, 
said the doctor. Look how smooth the sides are. I wonder what they found. You think something old and alien was lying dormant under here, and that when it was dug up it came alive and sent out that power splurge? The doctor gave her one of his heart-melting grins. That's what I love about you, Martha Jones, he cried. You use your brain. Martha watched as the doctor examined one of the black, warty growths that covered the tree. He put his face so close to it she expected him to sniff it, or maybe even give it a lick. Instead, he whipped out his sonic again, pointed it at the growth, and turned it on. The result was spectacular. The growth, plus another dozen or so close to it, unfurled and launched itself from the tree. All at once, Martha found herself fighting off squealing, fist-sized creatures, which appeared to be composed of a spindly, thrashing tangle of black roots. She felt them scratching her hands and scuttling lopsidedly up the sleeves of her jacket to reach her face. Repulsed, she batted and clawed at them, but each time she managed to fling one away, it propelled itself back into the fray. Beside her, the doctor was fighting a similar battle. He tried zapping the creatures with his sonic, but that only seemed to enrage them. Martha became vaguely aware that he was fighting off the rooty things with one hand whilst scrabbling in a jacket pocket with the other. It wasn't until she saw a jet of flame, however, that she allowed herself to glance across at what he was doing. He had taken a candle from his coat pocket and somehow turned it into a mini flamethrower with the aid of his sonic screwdriver. He was sweeping it in an arc in front of him now, and it was working. Terrified of the fire, the root creatures were retreating, scuttling back to the tree and burrowing into the soft earth at its base. Within thirty seconds, the last of the creatures had disappeared. Well, said the doctor conversationally, that was unexpected. Martha gave one last almighty shudder. What were those things? Some kind of defense system, I'd say, protecting the big mama here. He blew out the candle. Martha gave him a wry look. I can't believe the amount of stuff you've got in your pockets. Hey, a voice called behind them. Do you mind telling me what you're doing on my property? The doctor and Martha turned to see a tall man striding towards them through the mist. He looked, thought Martha, like a nice, ordinary bloke, albeit a bit disgruntled. We're trespassing, said the doctor. The man looked taken aback. Okay, he said slowly. Well, do you mind telling me why you're trespassing? The doctor flashed a look at Martha. Ah, actually, we're not trespassing, we're... He produced his psychic paper and held it up in front of the man's face. Whatever it says here. The man took the psychic paper and peered at it. Environmental health and safety operative, he murmured. Yep, said the doctor, that's me. Are you aware, Mr... Pirelli? Are you aware, Mr. Pirelli, that you possess a very dangerous tree? The man looked up at the tree uncertainly. Dangerous. Lethal, said Martha. The man licked his lips. In what way? The doctor put a reassuring hand on Mr. Pirelli's shoulder. Instead of answering his question, he said, Tell me, Mr. Pirelli, has anyone, to your knowledge, dug anything up here recently? Well, my son and his friends were digging here earlier. They said they were looking for buried treasure. You know how boys are. And where's your son now? Mr. Pirelli, the doctor asked, his gaze intense. Um, they headed into town to get their costumes for tomorrow night, Tozia's Costume Emporium. Martha thought the doctor's next question would be to ask where that was, but he surprised her by saying, Across from Harry Ho's ice cream place, big clown in the window. Mr. Pirelli nodded. Cheers, Mr. Peep, come on, Martha. The doctor began to stride away. 
Martha gave the bemused man a sympathetic smile and followed the doctor. My son's not in trouble, is he? Mr. Pirelli called after her. Crossing her fingers, Martha said, Don't worry, Mr. Pirelli, we'll sort it out. I'm sure everything will be fine. She was about to break into a jog when something occurred to her. What's your son's name, by the way? Rick, he said. She caught up with the doctor on the pavement heading back into town. He was in brooding mode, hands in pockets, head down. He murmured something as she came abreast of him. What? she said. He looked into her eyes. His face was set and serious. So quietly that it made her shiver, he muttered, By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Rick Pirelli was a werewolf, Scott Beaumont was Frankenstein's monster, and Thad Steiner was some sort of cross between a mummy and a ghoul. Or at least, that was what they were going to be tomorrow. Having tried his costume on in the shop, Rick could hardly wait for the Halloween carnival. They crossed to Harry Hose, ordered ice creams and sodas, and sat down to discuss the merits of certain movies. They became so involved in their heated exchange that none of them noticed the two strangers until a shadow fell over their table. They looked up to see a skinny guy in a tight suit grinning down at them. The guy was holding a banana split in one hand and a long-handled spoon in the other. Aren't bananas brilliant, he said. The boys just stared at him. Finally, Rick said, Who are you? I'm the doctor, said the man, and I bet you're Rick. How did you know that? Rick asked. Well, you look like a Rick. You're all kind of Rick-like. Mind if I sit down? Uh, what do you want? Rick said. The doctor grabbed a chair from the next table, swung it round and plonked himself into it, then he jumped up again almost immediately. Whoops, manners, he said, and offered the chair to the girl beside him, who, Rick now noticed, was both beautiful and eating something chocolatey with caramel sauce. He grabbed another chair for himself, sat down and leaned forward on his bony elbows, as if he and the boys were about to tell each other their deepest secrets. So, he murmured, dug up anything good lately? The boys looked at each other in alarm. Who did you say you were again? asked Thad nervously. He's the doctor, and I'm Martha, said the girl, and nodded at Thad and Scott. So what do they call you two, then? They told her. Then the doctor lunged forward, making Scott jump. Staring at the boy intently, he said, You're about to tell us what you dug up. Why should we tell you? Scott blurted. Because, said the doctor quietly, if you don't, there's a very, very strong likelihood that you won't live to see your... How old are you? Twelve, said Scott. Okay, said the doctor, rotating his fingers in an anti-clockwise direction. Your thirteenth birthday. Hey, exclaimed Rick. Are, are you threatening us, mister? Because if you are... Calm down, Martha said, putting a hand on his arm. Of course he's not threatening you. He's trying to warn you. He's trying to save your life. Save my life, said Rick. But... <laughs> But why does my life need saving? Because that thing you dug up, whatever it is, is dangerous, said the doctor. Very dangerous, added Martha. Oh yeah, the doctor agreed. Very, very, and add another great big dollop of very with lashings of very on top. The boys looked at each other uncertainly. The doctor sighed and pointed out of the window. That green mist, he said. That's you, that is. They looked through the window, and all three of them gasped. 
An eerie green mist was creeping into the town square. What is it? whispered Thad. It came out of the hole you dug, said the doctor. Whatever was in there was dormant, and now it isn't. It's very old and very deadly. Scott looked as though he was about to throw up. It was only a book, he wailed. At last, said the doctor, a chink of daylight. Give that man a pineapple. What sort of book? Martha asked. Dunno, said Rick. It had weird words in it, like a foreign language or something. Where's this book now? Under my bed, said Rick. The doctor jumped up so quickly that his chair fell over. Show me, he said. Something strange was happening to the book underneath Rick's bed. It was beginning to quiver and twitch. The reddish-brown material which covered it rippled. Tiny sparks of green light began first to dance across it and then to coalesce to form a jagged, spidery network of strands. The web of light spread across the book, around it, and within moments had enshrouded it completely. Then it began to dwindle, to fade, and, in less than a minute, had vanished completely. And where the book had been, among the dust balls and dead spiders and discarded comic books, was suddenly nothing but an empty space. About a million channels to choose from, Martha said, remote control in hand. And not one decent thing to watch. The doctor didn't reply. He was standing by the window of Martha's hotel room, peering out into the darkness. His hands were in his pockets, and he was rocking backwards and forwards on his heels. So what's our next move? Martha asked. Back to Rick's first thing in the morning, speak to his brother, see if he's got this book. He made an exasperated sound with his lips. She knew how much he hated mooching around, biding his time. He always had to be somewhere doing something. Ever since accompanying the boys back to Rick's, only to find the mysterious book had disappeared, they'd been at a bit of a loose end. Suddenly the doctor was running for the door. Come on! He thundered down the stairs, Martha in hot pursuit. Rick Pirelli's brother Chris had got out of bed to fetch himself a glass of water. It was 12.30, and the house seemed encased in the kind of thick, muffled silence you usually got only with a heavy snowfall. Before getting back into bed, he stopped at his window and peered out. He could only just make out the vague shape of the black tree at the bottom of the garden. Then he gave a little start. There was a glowing green light down by the tree. It seemed to be hovering in the air like a giant firefly, or maybe a candle someone was holding. But a candle with a green flame? Could that be an effect of the mist? Only one way to find out. A little voice murmured in his head. Ah, oh, gee, he groaned, as if he didn't have a choice. He pulled on jeans, sneakers and sweatshirt and went downstairs. He walked quietly through the dark house and let himself out the back door. The mist latched onto him straight away and curled around him like something alive. It was chilly, clammy, and now that he was down at ground level, it seemed much thicker. So thick, in fact that he couldn't even make out the tree from here. Neither could he see a light. He considered going back inside, but knew he wouldn't settle until he'd at least trudged down to the tree to satisfy himself there was nothing there. He was maybe halfway there when the tree came into view as a vague shape through the murk. He began to tread more carefully, trying to be as quiet as he could, though he didn't know, or maybe he just didn't want to know, what he thought might hear him. He was less than ten paces away when he realised there was something strange and different about the tree. 
No, not the tree itself, but the area where it stood. Next to the black tree was another tree that Chris felt sure had never been there before. It was tall and thin, and there was what looked like a roundish clump of foliage at the top of it. Then the new tree moved. Not much, but enough to make Chris realize that it wasn't a tree at all. Impossible as it seemed, it was a person. Someone very tall and thin with... No, it must be the swirling mist playing tricks with his eyes. The figure's head couldn't really be that big and wide, could it? Because if it was, how did the spindly neck support it? Chris stood motionless watching the figure. He saw the figure reach up with its hands, its impossibly long hands, and make a series of weird gestures in the air. And then it did something that made his blood run cold. It started to speak. The thing raised its arms high in the air and said something that sounded like Zagaraldus. Instantly it began to sink into the ground, as if a fissure had opened in the earth and was smoothly drawing the creature down. Chris watched as it disappeared, inch by inch. It took maybe a minute for the thing to disappear completely, last to go with the taloned fingers of its upraised hands. Chris stood for another five seconds, looking at the spot where the creature had stood. Then he turned and ran. He didn't stop running until he was back in his room and in his bed, shuddering under his bedclothes. The doctor and Martha hadn't come across a single soul since leaving the hotel. Martha thought that the good people of Blackwood Falls obviously had more sense than to venture out in a pea super like this. They were passing a pair of tall, black, wrought-iron gates. In the murk beyond, Martha could see a thread of path weaving between flanking expanses of grass, from which loomed the vague suggestions of gravestones. The doctor stopped. I see a light, he pointed through the bars of the gate. In there. I can't see anything, she said. It's gone now, but it was there. Come on, let's have a look. The gate creaked as they pulled it open. Well, said Martha, that was inevitable. The doctor grinned at her and strolled casually ahead, sonic at the ready. The green mist swirled around them. Soon the black gates were no longer visible. Suddenly, in the gloom to her right, she saw a yellowish blur. Was that... she began but the doctor was already striding off between the gravestones. Obviously it was, she muttered. As they neared the place where the yellowish blur had come from, they saw it a second time, and then a third, an eerie and mysterious wraith-like glow which gradually resolved itself into something more mundane, a cone of mist-diffused light cast by a bobbing torch. Seconds later they saw the vague outline of the person holding the torch, it was an old lady with straggly white hair, a long black skirt and a grey shawl. The old lady had her back to them and was leaning over, looking down at something. The doctor walked right up beside her and leaned over too. That's interesting, he said conversationally. He was peering into what looked to Martha like a rabbit burrow, quite narrow but so deep that she couldn't see the bottom, even though the old lady was shining her torch into it. The old lady turned to look at the doctor who are you? she asked, as if the doctor was intruding on her property. Is that really the most pertinent question you should be asking right now? he said blandly. She looked taken aback, but recovered quickly. Eyes flashing, she said, What are you doing here? That's the one, he said. We're investigating. 
So what are you doing here? Martha asked. The old lady seemed to puff herself up. Almost defiantly, she said, I was drawn here. I felt that something was wrong. Martha could almost hear the cogs whirring in the doctor's head. Really, he said. Now that's even more interesting. He had put his sonic screwdriver away when they had encountered the old lady. Now he whipped it out again and examined the hole with it. The old lady watched him for a moment and then asked, What's that? It's an alien device, said the doctor, watching her reaction out of the corner of his eye. She was silent for a moment, then she sniffed. You from outer space, then? He shrugged. Could be. She turned to Martha. Are you from outer space, too? No, said Martha. I'm from London. All at once, the sonic began to emit a high-pitched, warbling shriek. Uh-oh, said the doctor quietly. What? said Martha. They know we're here. Who do? asked the old lady. Whoever dug this hole. He turned the sonic off, jumped to his feet, and spun round. Several mini whirlwinds had sprung up among the mist-shrouded tombstones. They were gathering up autumn leaves which were strewn about on the ground. Within seconds, the whirlwinds had not only collected every leaf in the immediate vicinity, but had started to mould them into half a dozen roughly humanoid shapes, with thick stubby limbs and vaguely spherical heads. Martha watched in horrified fascination as, with an eerie crackling of dry leaves, the closest of the whirlwind figures raised one of its lumpen hands and pointed at her. Next moment, she was aware of something spinning towards her face. She ducked instinctively, and the spinning object, a leaf, she realised in amazement, whipped past, though not before the tip of it had grazed her cheekbone and opened a thin, stinging cut. Cover your heads! shouted the doctor, turning up the collar of his coat as the leaf creatures ambled towards them with a dry, scraping sound. Martha pulled the jacket up over her black hair as all six of the creatures raised their arms and unleashed a flurry of razor-sharp leaves. She was half aware of the old lady beside the doctor flipping her grey shawl over her head, and then all three of them were running across the grass, taking care not to collide with the tombstones, which seemed to be rising out of the green mist in front of them like obstacles conjured by their pursuers. Martha felt several of the leaves slice across the skin of her hands as she ran, leaving stripes of blood in their wake. Fleeing for the gates, leaves slashing and swooping around them, she was half aware of the doctor frantically searching his pockets. Finally he found what he was looking for, a little blue sachet of salt. He tore it open with his teeth and emptied the salt into his cupped hand. He muttered something, then flung the salt over his shoulder. Instantly the storm of murderous leaves swirling around them fluttered harmlessly to the ground. Martha glanced back just in time to see the leaf creatures collapse into half a dozen lifeless mounds. The doctor had turned and was running back towards the nearest of the mounds. As Martha thumped to a halt, panting, he thrust his sonic into it. Nothing, he said. Just leaves. He scattered them with a kick. What did you do? Martha asked the doctor. I chucked some salt at them, he said. Yeah, I, I, I could see that, but why? The doctor looked at the old lady and raised his eyebrows, as if inviting her to answer. Natural occult defence, she said, as if it was obvious. Very good, he said, giving her one of his goofy grins. You know your stuff. What did you say your name was again? I didn't, she said waspishly. 
and then abruptly her expression softened. But it's Ada, Ada Halligan. Pleased to meet you, Ada Halligan, said the doctor, shaking her hand. I'm the doctor, and this is Martha. You said a cult, pointed out Martha. Like magic, you mean? Or a science so ancient and arcane it seems like magic, he said. Ada Halligan watched them with interest. Why are you people here? she asked. The doctor tossed his sonic into the air, caught it, and slipped it into his pocket. We're here to help, he said. Intergalactic emergency services, that's us, commented Martha dryly. The doctor suddenly leaned forward, peering intently into Etta's face. You're old, aren't you? he said. He turned, wincing indignantly, as Martha punched him sharply in the back. Then his face cleared. Was that rude? He swung back to Etta. I'm sorry, that was rude, wasn't it? What I meant was, um, you've probably lived here a long time, you know a lot about the town, about its history. My great-great-great-grandparents were one of the founding families, she told him proudly. Well, great, he said. Let's go back to yours then for a chat, and preferably some cocoa. You're a very forward young man, aren't you, she said. Forwards, backwards, sideways, half the time, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. Etta raised an eyebrow and turned to Martha. Is he always like this? No, said Martha. Sometimes he can be quite eccentric. The chamber was deep underground and filled with a ceaseless insectile rustling. Bulbous growths tumesced from the undulating walls, nodular columns and contorted pedestals black and jagged and somehow sinewy jutted from the uneven floor. To an untrained eye, these strange, twisted shapes might have resembled the remains of lightning-blasted trees. They were actually the products of alien technology. And although they appeared inert, each separate component, and indeed the very fabric of the chamber, was threaded with a network of what appeared to be veins, through which pulsed a faint green light. Dominating the centre of the chamber was a dais that was almost the height of a man, from which sprouted a dozen or more vine-like tendrils connected to the walls on either side. A hollow appeared to have been scooped from the tangled knot of worm-like roots in the flattened crown of the dais, and in this hollow nestled the book that Rick and his friends had dug out from under the black tree. Silently, a stream of figures drifted into the chamber and formed a wide circle around the dais. The figures were impossibly tall and spindly, with long taloned fingers and massive squashy hairless heads. Even in this dank, windless place their black rags seemed to float around their elongated bodies. The leader of the figures stood before the book and placed the hooked tips of its many-jointed fingers on the fleshy cover. It began to chant words that seemed ancient and alien and somehow ominous. The creature's voice, echoing around the chamber, was breathy, sing-song, almost giggly. It was the voice of a child that was sweetly and dangerously mad. The book began to writhe and quiver. Sparks of green light flickered and danced about its surface, and as each spark formed, it was sucked greedily away by the chamber itself. As the chanting continued, the light produced by the book gradually strengthened in both brightness and volume. Soon green light was flowing down the dais and radiating out across the floor in great gulping surges. It flowed through the tendrils attached to the dais and into the walls. It flowed into the nodular growths and contorted pedestals invigorating them. 
The spindly figures looked around, grinning their horribly wide, jagged-toothed grins. They hissed in ecstasy and clicked their long, segmented fingers as the chamber came to glowing life around them. When the chamber had drunk its fill, the leader of the figures raised its right arm and turned its hand palm upwards, the fingers unfurling slowly. As if responding to this movement, a bubble of swirling light formed in the centre of the book and then rose slowly into the air before nestling into the palm of the leader's outstretched hand. The leader brought the hand close to its massive mouth, as if to swallow the ball of light. Instead, however, the creature whispered a further incantation, then stretched out its arm, raising its hand high above its bulbous head. The ball of light sat there for a moment, and then it drifted away. Rick Pirelli was tossing and turning fitfully in bed, his sheets a sweaty tangle around his feet. His eyelids flickered, and he muttered to himself. In his mind's eye, he kept seeing the book, kept feeling its binding squirm under his fingers. Then he was standing by the black tree. Then he was digging beneath it, sliding down between its roots into a stinking, filthy tunnel. Then he was fighting his way through green mist, trying to find his way home but the mist was getting into his lungs and choking him, stinging his eyes and clamping itself to his face. And then Rick was back in his bed. And it should have been dark, but it wasn't, because the room was lit by a sickly green glow. The glow was coming from the eyes of the werewolf costume hanging on the back of his door. As Rick stared at the costume, it slowly turned its sagging, frozen snarl of a face towards him. He cowered in terror beneath the pitiless scrutiny of its blazing, fluorescent eyes, and woke gasping, sweat or possibly tears running down his cheeks. It was dark in his room. There was no green glow. Rick looked across at the black, lumpy shape of the costume hanging on his door. It wasn't moving. Of course it wasn't. It was lifeless as an old coat. Rick settled back down into his bed and pulled the covers up to his chin and closed his eyes. But it was a long time before he slept. So tell me about the tree, said the doctor. He was sitting in a squashy old armchair, one hand wrapped around a mug of hot chocolate, the other scratching the head of a ginger tomcat curled in his lap. There were cats everywhere in Etta's rambling old house. Martha was just glad she wasn't allergic. Etta, sitting on a sofa adjacent to a crackling log fire, spread her wrinkled hands. What's to tell? It's old. Older than old. And your ancestors named the town after it, the doctor said. Etta nodded. They built the town around it. But why fools? the doctor asked. I mean, the Blackwood bit's obvious, but why fools? Is there a waterfall around here? It's not that said Etta. They believed that the tree didn't grow from the ground, but fell from the sky. It hit the ground with such force that it buried itself deep in the earth. So deep that the roots pierced the spirit world and released a tribe of cannibal spirits. The doctor stared at Etta. I'm guessing the roots of that tree extend right under your property, yes? She shrugged. I suppose. I'm also guessing, he continued, that the members of your family who've lived in this house have had... He waggled the fingers of both hands at the sides of his head. 
Lots of weirdy brain stuff going on, second sight, that kind of thing. Now Etta looked a bit more impressed. It's true that we've been blessed with certain psychic gifts, she conceded. Knew it! He shouted, jumping up and spilling the startled tomcat onto the floor. The doctor raised his head and sniffed as if he could smell something burning. That pong is unmistakable. And my teeth are itching again. Can you smell it, Martha? I can smell cat pee, if that's what you mean, she muttered under her breath. Residual psychic energy, he exclaimed. It's all over the place. This house is steeped in it. Is it dangerous? asked Etta, glancing around nervously. Won't do you any harm, said the doctor. If anything, it's good for you. Invigorates the old grey matter. But you've never had any village idiots in your clan. I should say not, said Etta a little stuffily. The doctor held up his sonic screwdriver. Mind if I do a bit of sonicking, just to see what's what? Etta waved an imperious hand. Be my guest. The doctor grinned and turned his sonic screwdriver on. Followed by Martha and a somewhat bewildered Etta, he wandered around the ground floor of the old lady's house, Sonic held out before him. Occasionally he would stop and thrust the device at or into something. Once he dropped to his knees so abruptly that Martha winced and pressed his ear to the scuffed floorboards. Have you found something? Martha asked after she and Etta had stood there patiently for thirty seconds while he tapped and hummed and listened. There's a bow weevil down there, he said, jumping up. It's a long way from home and it's got a nasty cough. Poor little fella. Martha and Etta exchanged a look. It was clear the old lady was growing impatient. Yes, but have you found anything relevant? Martha said. Relevance is relative, replied the doctor. He strode off again, sonicking all over the place. Thing is, it's a hard one to pinpoint. The fabric of the house has been soaking this stuff up for so many years that the entry point is hidden. It's like looking for a red ball in a sea of identical red balls. Impossible. So what's the point? snapped Etta. Sounds to me like you might as well quit. Quit? exclaimed the doctor, horrified. Just because something's impossible, that's no reason to quit. I happen to like impossible. Impossible's a challenge. Any old chancer can do almost impossible, but the real thing, the, the genuine article, that's the one that sorts the legends from the wannabes. Oh. He had been striding about as he was talking, but now... At the bottom of the wide staircase, he stopped dead and looked up. A black cat was crouched on the top step, fur standing up on its body, glaring balefully down at them. I don't like the look of that, he said quietly. Oh, that's just Romeo, said Etta. I think the doctor's referring to the way the cat's eyes are glowing green, said Martha. My guess is they're not supposed to do that. Romeo hissed at them. Out of the corner of her eye, Martha sensed movement and turned to see another cat slinking along the hallway. This one was long-haired, its rust-coloured coat streaked with black, and its eyes, too, were glowing with an unnatural green light. Next moment, the ginger Tom that had been sitting on the doctor's lap darted across the entrance hall and was immediately followed by a dainty white female. The light that filled both cats' eyes was swirling sluggishly, like a luminous version of the mist outside. It was a thick, soupy, somehow putrescent light. They're possessed, aren't they? She whispered to the doctor. Well, I prefer to think of it as holistic subjugation, which doesn't necessarily... Doctor! Martha screamed. The black cat had launched itself at them from the top step, a yowling black missile of teeth and claws. 
In a flash, the doctor grabbed Martha and Etta and swung them behind him, snapping back his head as Romeo sailed past his face, taking a swipe at him and missing his nose by inches. The cat landed on its feet and immediately turned to confront them again. And now more cats were appearing from above and around them, a bristling, screeching legion of vicious teeth, unsheathed claws and blazing green eyes. Run! the doctor yelled and bustled the two women ahead of him along the corridor that ran parallel with the staircase. But they had taken no more than a few steps when the kitchen door at the end of the corridor was nudged open and a further wave of cats came streaming out, eyes burning with green fire. Now there were cats both at their heels and ahead of them. The doctor pulled Martha and Etta behind him again. All three of them backed towards the wall of wood panelling that ran up the side of the staircase. Once again the doctor produced his sonic screwdriver and held it up like a weapon, swinging it from left to right. Behind him Martha raised her hands to protect her face as the cats closed in. Something jabbed her in the back. She was leaning against a doorknob. She twisted round in the confined space, curled her hand around it and gave it a tug, and the door popped open. In here, she hissed. The doctor glanced over his shoulder and saw the open door. Brilliant, he grinned. Oh, I love doors, me. Number one invention of all time, and so versatile. By the time he had finished babbling, the three of them were through the door. They hurried down a worn flight of stone steps and found themselves in a low-ceilinged but sizable cellar, cold and dank and smelling faintly of apples. The only light came from a fur-coated bulb hanging from six inches of flex in the centre of the ceiling. A long slit of a window, hinged at the top and set at eye level in the opposite wall, provided the only visible escape route. The green foggy darkness pressing against the glass gave Martha the odd sensation that they were underwater. Above them they could hear the cats mewling and padding about. The doctor pointed at a large wooden trapdoor set into the stone-flagged floor. What's that? Etta frowned, obviously irritated by what she saw as an irrelevant question. It's a fruit store, she said. There's no way out through there, if that's what you're thinking. Martha noticed the way the doctor's dark, unblinking eyes lingered on the trapdoor for a moment. Then he hurried across to the long, narrow window on the far side of the room. Shame about the cats, he said as he unlatched the window and cautiously lifted it. Not this their fault, I suppose. Soon as whoever's put the hex on them realises we've legged it, I expect they'll switch off the old voodoo. Your moggies will be harmless little furballs again by the morning, I should think, Etta. Probably be a bit offish, but blimey, they're cats. Who's going to notice the difference? He lifted the window all the way open and pushed it back. Right. I think the coast's clear. Come on. He levered himself out with no apparent effort, then grabbed Martha's hand and hauled her out just as easily. Together the two of them then pulled Etta out of the window. She was not a slim lady, and it was a narrow gap, but after a bit of oofing on everyone's part, they managed it. Standing in Etta's backyard, mist curling around them, the doctor suddenly looked a bit awkward. Um, sorry for causing you all this bother he said to Etta. She looked sternly at him for a moment, and then her face broke into a smile. You know what? I haven't had this much excitement in years. The doctor looked delighted. Oh, bless. So what now? Martha asked. He puffed out his cheeks. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm parched. Back to the hotel for a nice cuppa, I think. As he tromped down the street, Chris Pirelli felt bad. He was still scared after what had happened in the night. 
He needed to be on his own for a while to think about what he'd seen. He turned out of his street and was heading off down the road towards town when a voice behind him shouted, Hiya! Chris turned. Jogging towards him through the mist was a skinny man wearing a tight suit and a long brown coat and inane grin on his face. Oh, great, Chris thought. This is all I need. Scowling, he said. Have I got a sign above my head or something? The man stopped and scrutinized him so intently that Chris felt as if his thoughts were being read. The guy glanced above Chris's head. Uh, no, he said. Should you have? Chris sighed. Whatever you're selling, I'm not interested. What is this, Hassle Chris Day or something? There you go, said the man. Knew I was right. About what? About you being him. Who? Under his breath, the man said, Blimey, it's true what they say about teenagers. Slowly, he enunciated, You, Chris Pirelli, yes? Chris scowled. So what if I am? With a pleasant smile, the man said, Tell you what, Chrissy boy, let's just skip all the teenage angsty stuff. We'll take it as read that you've got issues that no one understands you and that you're confused about your sexuality. I'm not, Chris began, but the man shushed him, because otherwise this planet will be in flames by the time we finally finish this conversation. And if anyone tries to blame me for not saving it like I usually do, I'll just point the finger and say it was his fault. Chris stared at the smiling man and noticed again how dark and weird his eyes were. He couldn't help thinking, in fact, that the guy was not just smart, but that somehow he saw everything. Who are you? he asked. I'm the doctor, the man said. Okay, so what's that supposed to mean? Is it, is it like some online geek boy name or something? The man blinked, swallowed. For a moment he looked uncertain how to respond. Then he said, Anyway, moving swiftly on, where's the book, Chris? What book? Suddenly the guy looked deadly serious. I really haven't got time for this. But, but I, I don't know what you're talking about, Chris said weakly. The man stared at him a moment longer, and then the easy smile was back. No, you don't, do you? So what's bothering you then? Again, Chris got the impression that the man could see into his head. Nothing, he said quickly. Okay, said the man with a dismissive shrug and turned away. See you later. Chris stayed silent for maybe three seconds, watching the doctor saunter along the sidewalk. Then he called, What makes you think I got stuff on my mind? The doctor stopped. Then he pivoted on his heels. Quietly, he said, Oh, I've seen so much fear in my life, Chris. So many people with so many secrets that they can't or won't or don't share. And you know what the funny thing is? Most of the time, those people don't even know why they're keeping their secrets. Maybe they think they won't be believed, or even that people will laugh at them. He shrugged. I don't know. What do you think? Chris was silent for a moment. Then he blurted, I saw something. Oh, yeah, said the doctor casually. Well, last night I, I woke up and I looked out of my window and, and... And I promise that whatever you tell me, I'll believe you, the doctor murmured. And Chris saw in his dark, unblinking eyes that the doctor was speaking the truth. So he told his story. The doctor's eyes got starier and darker during the telling. And the more Chris talked, the more the doctor looked as if he was trying to remember something important. Tell me what this tall man looked like, he said, after Chris had described how the figure had sunk into the ground. He was the thinnest guy I've ever seen, 
Chris said, and he had these great big hands with fingers that were, I don't know, maybe a foot and a half long and, and, and a huge head, like, like... It suddenly dawned on him what the thing's head had reminded him of. Like a Halloween pumpkin. The doctor raised his eyebrows as realization dawned. Havoken, he said, and he said it in such a way that it made Chris shudder. Chris licked his lips. He could barely get his voice above a whispery rasp. Pardon me? Havoken, the doctor repeated, and then he half spun round and slapped himself theatrically on the forehead. Oh, I should have realised. Why didn't I realise? What a prawn. Bewildered, Chris said, Hey, don't beat yourself up about it, man. So what are these? Havoken, the doctor said for the third time. They're... He looked as if he was about to launch into a whirlwind explanation, then suddenly checked himself. Abruptly he grinned and gave Chris a friendly slap on the upper arm. Never you mind, fella. You just keep your head down and leave it to me. I'll sort it. Will you? Chris said, clearly out of his depth. Oh, yeah, said the doctor with a confident wink. Do this sort of thing all the time, me. Martha was not a happy bunny. After getting back to the hotel the night before, she had offered Etta her bed, half hoping the doctor would offer her his. Instead, he had said goodnight, seemingly oblivious of her situation, leaving her to make the best of a small sofa. Even then, she was so tired that that might have been bearable, were it not for the fact that Etta's snoring had kept her awake all night. In the end, she got up, grabbed herself a long, hot shower, and went off in search of the doctor and coffee. But the doctor's room was locked, and he didn't answer her knocks. Martha exited the hotel at something of a loss. It would be pointless wandering around town looking for the doctor, but she certainly couldn't face sitting in her room waiting for him to show up. She looked around, and through the murk hanging over the central square, she noticed a flashing neon sign. The words were blurry, but she could just make them out. Leo's Diner. As if spotting the sign had prompted it, her stomach rumbled, and she realised she hadn't eaten anything since the chocolate fudge sundae she'd scoffed in Harry Ho's yesterday afternoon. Right, she decided, breakfast. She walked across the street and into the diner. It was warm and smelled of frying bacon and coffee. There was music playing in the background. The place wasn't very full, possibly because it was early or because the mist was making people reluctant to leave their homes. Like every other place in Blackwood Falls, the inside of the diner was decorated with the trappings of Halloween. Paper ghosts, cardboard witches, glow-in-the-dark skeletons... Martha plonked herself in a booth by the window, where she could look out into the street. A grinning girl with bright blue eyes and ash-blonde hair appeared at her table and cried chirply, Hi, I'm your waitress this morning. My name's Cindy. Yeah, muttered Martha under her breath. It just had to be. Eager as a cartoon chipmunk, Cindy asked, What can I get for you this morning? Martha gave her order and Cindy went away. Deep beneath the earth, the Havokan were communicating. They knew that the man with the blue energy was a danger to them, and that he had an emotional link to the girl who accompanied him. And they knew, too, that the girl was currently alone and vulnerable. Martha was halfway through a mega fry-up when the hairs started prickling on the backs of her arms. She looked out at the street. Was the mist suddenly thicker and darker? The vague outline of the buildings across the square had disappeared completely, 
to be replaced by an almost solid bank of mist that was deepening to the murky green of overripe olives. Martha suddenly realized the music that had been playing in the diner had stopped. Tearing her gaze away from the scene outside, she turned her head and gasped. The room was full of mist. It was suffusing the place with an eerie gloom, obscuring the counter, the surrounding tables, the Halloween decorations, Martha's fellow diners. She jumped to her feet, her heart thumping hard. The mist seemed to be deepening even as she looked, turning solid objects into murky blobs, transforming day into night. Martha suddenly felt alone in the dank silence, alone, isolated, removed from reality. Sensing a presence behind her, feeling cold breath on the nape of her neck, she spun round. There was no one there. Hello, she called, annoyed at the rising panic in her own voice. The mist seemed to gulp down her words. There was no reply. She slid out of the booth and started walking in what she thought was the direction of the door. The mist was so thick now that it was like being blind. It was hard not to get disorientated. Despite the cold, she was sweating, and her heart was still bashing away in her chest. Calm down, she told herself. Don't panic. You're in a diner, that's all. Anything else is just your imagination. I know what you're doing, she said, trying to sound as if she wasn't affected in the slightest. I know what you're doing, and it won't work on me. I've seen stuff you wouldn't believe. If you think a bit of mist is going to scare me, then you're very much miss... A figure loomed out of the murk. Martha had to use all her willpower to stop herself crying out. Mist drifted over the figure and then spun away, making her think of a present being unwrapped. She leaned forward and saw that it was Cindy. The waitress was standing still as a statue, her eyes wide and glassy, her mouth half open. She didn't react when Martha touched her shoulder. She didn't even appear to be breathing. Like a standing corpse. Martha shuddered and moved on. A couple who had been having breakfast in a booth nearer to the door were similarly affected. Was everyone in the diner like this, Martha wondered? Hypnotized or paralyzed or whatever? Was everyone in town like this? But why not her? And what about the doctor? As if in answer to her question, Martha suddenly realized that she could see someone moving about in the gloom ahead. Doctor, she called. Is that you? If it was, he was not only moving slowly, but also remaining silent. But as the figure came closer still, Martha felt a crawling sense of unease. This wasn't the doctor. This was a giant, like someone on stilts. And this person wasn't just thin, but emaciated, skinny as a rake. And there was something wrong with the person's head. It was too big, too wide, like... like... Then the figure stepped forward out of the gloom, and Martha saw it clearly for the first time. Oh my! She breathed and backed away. The creature fixed her with its black, beady eyes. It opened its vast, zigzag mouth in its great, squashy head, and she saw rows and rows of serrated, shark-like teeth. The creature raised a hand which was almost as long as Martha's entire arm. Its taloned fingers moved slowly, clicking like bones as they did so. It made a sound, a breathy, high-pitched sound, something between a sigh, a murmur, and a giggle. Then it extended a long, spiny finger and seemed to draw something in the air in front of Martha's face. And suddenly she couldn't move. 
Every muscle in her body seemed frozen. It was like being tightly bound with strong invisible rope. Martha could only stand there horrified as the grinning thing reached out for her. Here, kitty, kitty, called the doctor warily, pushing open Etta's front door a few inches and poking his head round the gap. Although he had confidently told Etta that the cats would be back to normal this morning, the doctor had no way of knowing whether that was actually true beyond doing what he was doing now. If screaming balls of fur with glowing green eyes suddenly came flying at him from all directions, he'd conclude that he'd been wrong and leg it out of there. He looked left and right and even above his head, but all seemed quiet. Then a grey cat slunk through the partly open kitchen door at the end of the corridor beside the central staircase and came padding towards him. The doctor scrutinised it as it approached. It had that serenely disdainful catty swagger about it, and its eyes, though green, were not glowing. The doctor stepped into the house and pushed the door closed behind him. Still looking around, the doctor crossed to the wooden door in the panelling that led to the cellar. He could feel the energy in the air with every step he took. It tingled in his skin, vibrated in his nerve endings. Although she didn't know it, Etta and her family had been living slap-bang on top of a vast source of alien power for the past couple of hundred years. It had been dormant, but now it was powering up, getting ready to tear a great big hole out of the planet. Pulling open the wooden door, the doctor went down into the cellar. He crossed straight to the trapdoor he had asked Etta about and tugged it open. A sour, sweet smell wafted up at him, together with a surge of energy so strong it made his flesh tighten, his eyes water and his hair stand up in punky spikes. Whoa, talk about overdoing it with the aftershave, he said, and backed away, rubbing his face vigorously with his hands, running his tongue over his itchy teeth. When the energy had dispersed a little, he approached the open trapdoor again. Beneath it, just as Etta had said, was a square storage space about chest height lined in sheets of metal to make it impervious to rodents and other pests. It was empty now. The doctor jumped down into the hole, his feet clanging on the metal floor. He ran his hands over the metal walls of the storage chamber, probing for gaps, searching for a dodgy hinge, a hidden catch, anything. It didn't take him long to find a loose rivet at the top of the right-hand wall. He pressed it confidently, and nothing happened. Nonplussed, he tried twiddling it, and a metal door about a metre square swung open to the side of him. He rummaged in his pocket until he found a pencil torch. He turned it on and shone it into the darkness beyond the door. The light revealed a narrow tunnel, the walls roughly clad in rotting timber. Ready or not, here I come, he said, and clamping the torch between his teeth, he crawled inside. The walls were writhing around her. The ceiling was undulating above her head. Even the floor was rippling beneath her feet. Martha's entire surroundings were made up of black roots or vines which were constantly on the move, twisting and intertwining like a chamber of snakes. Green light was pulsing and flickering through them, bathing the place in a dim, toxic glow. The only thing that wasn't moving in the hellish environment was Martha herself. She was immobile her muscles locked into place, able to do nothing but think and observe. 
She was trying to overcome the fact that she was terrified out of her wits, trying to tell herself that the reason she kept stepping back into the TARDIS was precisely so that she could have experiences like this. I mean, she thought, here I am in an alien lair. I'm surrounded by giant skinny pumpkin men. I mean, how amazing is that? The pumpkin men she knew were called her Vulcan. She knew that because she could understand their language, even though it was composed not of traditional speech, but of a complicated fusion of chants and movements and little rituals. Thanks to the TARDIS, she understood the Havokan's body language, their facial expressions, even their silences. She knew that they were wary of the Doctor, that they considered him dangerous simply because of the technology they had detected him using. She was aware, too, that they knew he was different to the other inhabitants of the planet. When Martha heard the Havokan talking about her, she tried not to look alarmed or interested, tried not to let on that she knew what they were saying. They talked about her as a hostage, as a bargaining tool. She knew that they had taken her in the belief that the Doctor wouldn't move against them whilst they had her in their clutches. Martha was trying to store it all up, trying to remember all the things she had seen and heard in case it proved useful later. She had learned that the Havokan's power reserves were low, and that even with the necris, which was the book on top of the plinth thing in the centre of the room, there was now barely enough left to channel their psychic energy. Paralyzing all the people in the diner while they had grabbed her had taken a lot out of them, and they needed a temporary power boost to keep things ticking over. Without it, the, she translated it as Skyheart, though took it to mean the place they were currently standing in, the Skyheart would slip back into dormancy, forcing the Havokan once again into hibernation. She watched as the Havokan gathered around the Necris and began to chant, their soft, childlike voices making Martha feel woozy. The Havokan sketched symbols in the air with their hideous fingers. Their leader produced some kind of powder or dust, apparently from nowhere, and scattered it in a ritualistic pattern. One of the Havokans stepped forward and placed a hand on the Necris. Instantly, all the bubbles of green light that flickered and flashed intermittently among the writhing vines seemed to rush towards the centre of the chamber to gather at the base of the plinth and flow upwards. The Havokan, with its hand on the book, became bathed in green light. It opened its wide mouth and hissed. The light enveloped the Havokan completely, filling its deep-set eyes and the black, jagged crack of its mouth. And then the alien faded away. Rick, Scott and Thad trooped past the stalls to the park entrance. Rick was scowling, out of sorts. Not even the thought of the fun they'd be having that evening could cheer him up. In fact, there was a part of him that wished the Halloween carnival wasn't happening at all, a part of him that would be glad when it was over. They passed beneath the banner at the entrance. A voice hailed them as they did so. Hey, you guys, how's it going? Rick jumped, at first unable to identify the source of the voice. Then he realised it was coming from above his head and looked up. One of his neighbours, Mr Everson, was at the top of a tall ladder, fixing some coloured lights to one of the wooden stanchions across which the banner had been hung. He had a hammer in his right hand and a bunch of six-inch nails sticking out of the pocket of his shirt. Hey, Mr Everson, Rick shouted. We're just going for a soda, you want one? Mighty kind of you, Rick, but I got myself a flask of coffee right there in my bag. See you later, Mr Everson, Rick said and the boys turned out of the gate and set off up the road. They had gone no more than twenty metres when they heard a cry from behind them abruptly cut off, and then the clatter of something falling to the ground. 
The three of them glanced at each other in alarm. That's Mr. Everson, said Rick. They ran back in the direction they had come. Although they had only walked a little way up the road, the park entrance had already been swallowed by mist. After a few seconds, however, it came into sight, and Rick scanned the ground, expecting to see his neighbour lying injured or unconscious, having fallen off his ladder. But there was no sign of him. Rick looked up. He wasn't at the top of his ladder either. Where's he gone? asked Scott pointlessly. Dunno, but his hammer's there, said Thad, pointing. That must have been what we heard hit in the ground. Rick approached the hammer, mystified. He bent and reached for it, and suddenly, as though alerted by his proximity, spidery threads of green light began to flicker around it, to dance up and down its handle and its metal head. Rick snatched his hand back, alarmed. Whoa! cried Thad. Did you see that? Scott's eyes were wide with fear. Where is Mr. Everson? What's happened to him? I think he's been taken, said Rick. The Havokan that had disappeared was gone for maybe thirty seconds, when it returned, unfolding from a bilious mass of glowing energy which formed in the air, it was not alone. It was accompanied by a bearded man in a baseball cap and a lumberjack shirt, whose mouth was open in shock. The man staggered forward as if pushed from behind, his head turning rapidly from left to right as he looked around him. He spotted Martha and goggled at her in bewilderment. Then the man seemed to register his surroundings and Martha saw the shock on his face turn to fear. It was several seconds before he seemed to notice the Havokan. As soon as he did, he yelled out in panic and broke into a stumbling run. He clearly wasn't running with any particular goal in mind, but merely following his instincts and trying to get as far away as possible from the creatures around him. He had taken only a few steps when the Havokan leader reached out a hand and sketched an intricate shape in the air. Instantly, the man froze in mid-step, held immobile. Martha saw the utter panic on his face and tried to convey calmness to him with her eyes, but he didn't even look at her. The Havokan leader drew a circular shape in the air before quickly spreading its taloned fingers. Instantly, threads of green energy looped around the man and propelled him towards the wall of writhing black roots. To Martha's horror, the wall suddenly opened up and the man disappeared, screaming inside. The hole closed behind him like that of a massive predator closing on its prey, and his scream was abruptly cut off. A moment later, Martha heard another sound. A sound that turned her legs to jelly. It was the splintering crunch of bones. End of disc one. Disc two. It wasn't long before the tunnel widened out, enabling the doctor to stand up. He brushed off the knees of his suit, stretched, and spat out the torch, which he caught neatly in his right hand. He was intrigued to see that beyond the spot where the rotting timber cladding petered out, the walls, floor, and ceiling appeared to be moving. He shone his torch on them and strolled over. 
Thick black vines, knobbly and glistening, were writhing over and around and in between one another, thousands and thousands of them. He poked one, and it flashed briefly with green light, then gave him a mild electric shock. Ow! he said, and waggled his fingers in the air to get the tingly numbness out of them. He put on his black-rimmed spectacles and examined the vines more closely. Kinetic binary fusion, he murmured with a soppy grin. That's beautiful, in an icky, slimy, creepy sort of way. He was about to move on when the vines clenched and shuddered, then began to move more quickly. At the same time, a renewed surge of green light rippled through them. At first, the doctor thought an alarm had been triggered by his prodding the vine. Then he realised what it really was. Someone's happy, he said. Had little feed, of you? Little power boost? The doctor's face was grim. Although he had never encountered the Havoken before, he knew exactly what sort of power they used. He pressed on, and eventually the tunnel branched out into two tunnels, then three, and then into chambers which sometimes contained as many as six burrow-like exits. He marvelled at the whole tentacular subterranean system, imagined it stretching the length and breadth of Blackwood Falls, with all the townspeople living on top of it. The deeper he went, the less featureless the tunnels became. Nodular growths bulged in greater profusion from the walls and floors. Green light was bubbling and burping and flickering all around him now, though even with the boost it had just received, the doctor could tell that the system was barely ticking over. Although he didn't know his way about, he was following his nose, or rather his tingly skin and itchy teeth, to what he guessed would be the control centre. Etta's house might be drenched in residual energy because it was bang on top of a bit of Havokan technology closest to the surface, but the real power, the real heart of the place, lay much deeper. It took the doctor about fifteen minutes to reach the central chamber. As soon as he felt he was getting close, he switched off his torch and put it in his pocket. His teeth were itching unbearably now, and he was trying to ignore them. His hair was standing straight up on his head, and his skin was sensitive to the touch. The tunnel he was currently walking along was bathed in light that pulsed greener and brighter than anything he had encountered so far. The light came from a vast arched opening at the far end. He crept up to the arch and peeked around the corner. He saw a huge space, not quite cathedral-like, but not far off. There was lots of equipment in here, though dominant among it was a central dais attached to the walls on either side by loops of sinewy black vine and topped by a kind of claw-like tangle of roots. In the middle of the roots nestled what the doctor guessed was the book that Rick and his friends had dug out from the earth at the base of the tree. Over on the right, standing so motionless that he knew she'd been immobilized, was Martha. He took a few moments to observe and admire the Havokan, drifting dreamily about the place like vast spindly wraiths. Then, crouching low, he slipped into the chamber and behind a big bulbous black thing growing out of the floor. He waited patiently for his moment, then slipped across to another black thing that looked like a sort of half-melted bouncy castle. From here he was directly opposite where Martha was standing. He waited until all the Havokan were facing away from him, and then he rose up from behind his hiding place and gave her a little wave. She spotted him immediately, and he saw her eyes widen a fraction. He guessed she couldn't react any more than that, which was probably a good thing. It would pretty much have ruined his element of surprise if the Havokan had caught her gawping at him. He grinned and winked, then ducked back out of sight again. 
He sat for perhaps thirty seconds, thinking hard, and then, as he always did, came up with an idea. Thinking how glad he was to be an ideas man, even if occasionally they turned out to be rubbish, he rooted in his pockets. Thinking also how glad he was to be a man with well-filled pockets, he eventually found what he was looking for and held it up with a silent voila. It was a safety pin, one of the big, old-fashioned kind. The doctor unfastened it and, without hesitation, jammed the point into the ball of his thumb. Instantly, a thick, dark bead of blood welled from his punctured skin. Glancing quickly around, the doctor scuttled over to the wall and smeared the blood onto the nearest writhing vine. He watched in fascination as the vine glowed green and his blood was absorbed. Then he crawled back to his hiding place and started counting. He had reached eight when the vine convulsed. The convulsion set off a chain reaction which radiated outwards in all directions, like ripples on a pond. Within seconds, the entire intricate complex of roots and vines was out of control, thrashing in apparent distress. And as the doctor had guessed, or at least hoped they would be, the Havokan were affected too. They were clutching their heads and weaving from side to side, a mournful crooning emanating from their beanpole bodies. The doctor scrambled to his feet and peered over the top of the bouncy castle thing. On the other side of the chamber, Martha had realised that the Havokan influence over her had been broken and that she could move again. She stretched and stamped her feet, then took a hesitant step forward. The doctor ran across the chamber, dodging in and out of the beleaguered Havokan, and grabbed her hand. "What did you do?" she shouted. "I've given the system a touch of indigestion. My blood's a bit rich for its palate. How long will it last?" Not long. We should be making tracks. Hand in hand, they ran back across the chamber. Instead of heading straight for the exit, he dragged her over to the dais on top of which sat the book. The tangle of roots holding it in place were clenching and unclenching involuntarily, like a hand or a claw. The doctor waited until its fingers were fully extended. Then he reached in and snatched the book. He shoots. He scores. He cried, brandishing his prize in triumph. Now let's skedaddle. He grabbed Martha's hand once again, and they fled through the writhing corridors. Abandoned. That was how Etta felt. Abandoned and forgotten. She'd woken up in a strange bed, wondering where the heck she was. It was only when she sat up and saw the green mist outside that she remembered about the doctor and Martha and her cats. She was splashing water on her face within a minute and downstairs within three. She was relieved to find her dear old pets back to normal, just as the doctor had promised when she arrived home. She put down food and milk for them, and was just about to fix herself a coffee when she heard a peculiar rumbling sound. Next moment, her crockery began rattling on the shelves, prompting several of her cats to abandon their breakfast and dart away with yowls of protest. What on earth was happening now? Was this the mothership descending from the heavens? Was the ground about to split asunder and swallow them all whole? She went to the window and looked out. Over her rear fence, she could just make out the black tree looming through the mist. She was astonished to see it shuddering and jerking, as if in the grip of a giant hand. She was even more astonished to see sparks of green energy skittering along its branches, and then the ground crack open beneath the pressure of a squirming tangle of thick black roots. One of the roots, or several, caused her fence to buckle and partially collapse. Etta was still gawping at the black writhing mass, wondering what was going to happen next when she heard thumping footsteps coming from the direction of her hallway. She hurried from her kitchen just in time to see her basement door fly open and the doctor come bounding out. Martha was a few steps behind him, flustered and rosy-cheeked. 
Although she had been hoping to see the two of them again, Etta's first response was one of indignation. What were you doing in my basement? she demanded. Salt! the doctor yelled at her. I beg your pardon? Got any salt? Taken aback, Etta could only gesture vaguely. Yes, it's in the uh, kitchen, the doctor shouted. Course it is. He bounded past Etta, raced down the corridor and hurtled through the kitchen door. Martha flashed Etta an apologetic look and ran after him. When Etta entered the kitchen herself, five seconds later, it was to find the doctor emptying a tub of salt onto her dining table. She watched as he grabbed a handful and rubbed it all over the front cover of the book he was carrying. He gave the spine and the back cover the same treatment, then opened the book, seemingly at random, and chucked a fistful of salt inside before slamming it shut. Only then did he allow himself a split second to relax. He expelled a deep breath and said, There you go, that'll stop him nicking it back until we get it to the TARDIS. Etta gave him one of her no-nonsense stares. Whatever are you babbling about? The doctor snatched the book off the table and waved it in the air. This is their starter motor, and that thing out there, he pointed towards the back of the house, is their spaceship. Etta blinked at him. Do you mean the tree? The tree, he confirmed. What rot, she said. The doctor stared at her for a moment, as if he couldn't believe she had contradicted him. Then he said, Do you know, you're right. You're a hundred gazillion percent right. Because that's not their spaceship. That's just the nose cone of their spaceship. Come on! Abruptly, he ran back out of the kitchen, sweeping past Martha and Etta, the book clutched in his hand. Where now? Martha shouted, hurrying after him. The TARDIS! he yelled. See you later, Etta, Martha called back over her shoulder. She slammed the front door after her and suddenly the house was silent again. Etta stood in the dusty aftermath of the whirlwind that was the doctor. It's true what they say about the Brits, she said. Mad as hatters, the lot of them. Even the ones from outer space. The TARDIS was encased in a crackling, flickering dome of green energy. The doctor stopped dead when he saw it, then muttered, Right, and whipped out his sonic. As soon as he turned it on and pointed it at the dome, the crackling intensified. The doctor adjusted the setting and had another go, but once again the crackling altered, becoming deeper, more sonorous. Oh, now I'm getting cross, he grumbled. He stepped back and raised his head to the sky. I suppose you think you're clever, he shouted. Then he sighed and grudgingly admitted, Which you are, quite. What's it doing? asked Martha. It's gazumping me, the doctor said, and waggled his sonic in the air. It keeps anticipating me moves, changing frequency before I do. You mean it's alive? Well, not alive exactly, just a bit brainier than most of the force fields I've met on my travels. Suddenly he pulled a face. Ah, What's wrong? Martha asked. The necrus is trying to break through the occult shield I created around it. He tossed the book to her and she caught it instinctively. Sure enough, the book was rippling, contracting. Yuck, she said. Less of the techno babble, the doctor scolded her. Long words only confuse people. He tapped his sonic against his bottom lip, brow furrowed as he thought the situation through. Then he grabbed the book from her again and shouted, Come on! Where are we going now? she asked as he passed her in a blur of motion. Somewhere else, he called. Bet none of your friends have ever been fat, have they? she shouted and ran after him. It was 45 minutes since Mr. Everson's disappearance. 
The hammer had long since ceased its weird light show. Rick had picked it up, and nothing happened. The hammer was just a hammer. I bet the doctor would believe us, said Thad. Scott rolled his eyes. Yeah, but the doctor's not here, is he? Well, maybe we should go look for him then, Thad suggested. Oh, great idea, Brainiac, said Scott scathingly. That shouldn't take too long. There's only about ten million places he could be. Rick said quietly, You're not gonna believe this, guys. Scott and Thad glanced at him, then followed the direction of his gaze. The gangly figure of the doctor was racing towards them out of the mist, the equally slim but shorter figure of his friend Martha at his heels. Hey! Rick shouted, spotting what the doctor was holding in his hand. You found my book! The doctor and Martha thumped to a stop. Martha was panting, but the doctor wasn't. Looking at Rick a little wildly, the doctor cried, I need some iron! Bewildered, Rick said, Some... Iron! Iron! The doctor shouted. Surely you've heard of it. It's a malleable, ductile, ferromagnetic, metallic element mainly found in hematite and magnetite. Grappling irons are made out of it, and soldering irons, and, and, and horses, and ages, and fists. Rick was too flustered by the doctor's urgency, by the way the man was staring at him to think clearly. What, what kind of iron? was all he could think of to say. The doctor did a double take. Anything. Anything made out of iron. A crowbar, a jemmy, an iron... Pomegranate doesn't matter as long as it's iron. Rick suddenly realized that the hammer was still in his hand. He held it out. Well, there's this, he said. Brilliant, cried the doctor as if Rick had performed the most astounding magic trick ever. He snatched the hammer from Rick with one hand and lobbed the book carelessly over his shoulder with the other. Martha stepped forward and caught it. The doctor produced what looked to Rick like a thin torch from his coat pocket and turned it on. The torch made a high-pitched warbling noise, and a brilliant blue light shone out of the end of it. Whoa! Thad breathed as the doctor used the torch to reshape the iron hammer. Whatever the device really was, it sliced through the dense metal. The boys watched in awestruck disbelief as the doctor melted and shaped the chunk of iron, forming it into a band. What is that thing? asked Rick. Sonic screwdriver, said the doctor absently. How does it work? asked Thad. Very well, thanks, said the doctor and reached behind him. Martha? Martha placed the book into his hand. The doctor laid it on the iron band, then used his sonic screwdriver to mould the band around it. He made a few minor adjustments, then, when he was happy, sealed the band shut. Finally, he sat back on his heels. Try getting out of that one, he said to the book and slipped the sonic back into his pocket. So, Martha said, tell us about the Havoken. The what? said Rick. They're... oh, so ancient, said the Doctor. When they're operating at full capacity, they have the ability to transform matter, alter perception, and shift time. Black magic, said Thad. Just a different kind of science, said the Doctor. So, these Havoken guys, said Rick, have they, like, landed here in the falls? Are they making all this weirdness happen? They didn't land here, exactly, said the Doctor. They crashed, but not recently. Briefly, he told the boys how the Havokan ship had come down millennia before, how the majority of it was buried deep in the earth, and how the town had been built around it. Hey, how lucky are we to live on top of a whole bunch of aliens? exclaimed Scott, then withered at the look the doctor gave him. Or, or not, he said. Luck had nothing to do with it, said the doctor. Your ancestors were drawn here by a psychic pulse. Nothing too extreme, just a gentle suggestion sent out by the ship. It waited and waited for you lot to get clever enough to help it, then it sought you out and planted instructions in your pliable little brains. He raised his hands and adopted a ghostly voice. 
Build here, protect us, tend to our needs. By tend to our needs, do you mean the Havoken forced the townspeople to... Martha drew a finger swiftly across her throat. Offer a human sacrifice, you mean? Nah, don't be daft. The Pulse just got the people to create routes to the Havoken ship, like the one in Etta's cellar, so they could keep things ticking over. Now and again, someone was probably chosen to wander about the corridors so the ship could suck up a few brainwaves. Low-maintenance stuff. Oh, said Martha. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. So how come they've woken up now? Rick asked. Well, that's down to you lot. Couldn't keep your noses out, could you? Had to dig up old Nelly Neckris here. He gave them a stern look. The boys looked back, suitably shamefaced. Then the doctor said airily, Though, to be honest, if it hadn't been you, it would have been someone else. But why now? Martha asked. Why not now? replied the doctor. I'm guessing it's taken all this time for the ship to repair itself properly and the Necris to work its way to the surface. Plus, knowing the Havoken, they'll have had to be the right configuration of planets and confluence and whatnots and all that palaver before they could rise again. He uttered these last two words in a convincingly blood-curdling Vincent Price voice. So what do the Havoken want? asked Thad. Are they here to conquer and enslave humanity? Doubt it, said the doctor. They probably just want to leave. Well, that's all right then, said Martha. Then she saw the look on the doctor's face. It's not all right, is it? There's a catch, isn't there? Ah, uh, a bit of a one, the doctor conceded. Go on then, sighed Martha. Tell us the worst. Apologetically, the doctor said, Thing is, to take off, the Havoken ship needs... He looked at the boys and raised his eyebrows. Fuel? said Thad. Correctamondo, the doctor replied before grimacing. Oh, I promised myself I'd never say that again. He shook his head. So, yeah, their ship needs fuel, but the trouble is the fuel it uses... Oh, no, Martha said. It's people, isn't it? They use people as fuel. Well, yes and no. To be specific, they use negative emotional energy, terror, pain, distress, that kind of thing, contained within the raw matter of blood, bone, brain and sinew. It's not very nice, but at least it's environmentally friendly. I think I'm going to puke, said Scott. How much of this raw material will they need? asked Martha. A lot, said the doctor, and his words suddenly seemed to ring ominously. And when you say a lot, you mean... Oh, round about the population of a small town like this, I'd say. Great, said Martha. Then she thought of something and nudged the necklace with her foot. But we've got their starter motor. Won't that scupper their plans? The doctor wrinkled his nose. Oh, I wish I could say yes, but us having the necklace won't stop them fueling up. They'll be planning something. Something major. What sort of something? asked Rick. Great big cull, I should think. Death and disaster on a massive scale, you know the kind of thing. And <laughs> I'll give you three guesses when the fun and frolics will start. Tonight, ventured Thad. At the Halloween carnival? Correct it, began the doctor, then stopped. Less emphatically, he said... That's right. So what will they do? asked Martha. Cast spells? Hypnotise everyone into that mincer machine of a spaceship? Oh, no, it will be far nastier than that, the doctor said. The Havoka might be big and scary, but they aren't physically strong. They'll use agents, he brandished the book. Just like they'll use agents to try and get this back. What kinds of agents? asked Martha. Like the leaves, said the doctor. Like the cats. Something wicked this way comes. He nodded grimly. Exactly. 
Twenty minutes later, the five of them were sitting in Harry Ho's. The boys were shoveling ice cream into their faces as if it was the last meal they would ever have. Martha was nursing a cappuccino and staring at the doctor, who had gone into brooding mode. Loath though she was to break his scowling reverie, Martha finally asked, Can we offer them an alternative? The doctor looked up. What? The Havoken. Isn't there something else they could use as fuel? Even if there was a fuel alternative, the ship would incinerate the town when it took off. In that case, said Martha, why don't we destroy that thing? She nodded at the necklace, which had been placed on the edge of the next table. Indestructible, said the doctor, or as good as. Chucking it into the middle of an exploding sun might just about do it. But it's infused with so many Havoken protective doodars that nothing on this planet would even come close to scratching its surface. Why is nothing ever simple? Martha sighed. Then she sat up straight and slapped her hands decisively on her thighs. So, come on then, what are we going to do? The doctor tapped his head. Think, he said. She sat back, lapsing into silence. Then she said, Why don't you do what you did last time? Attack them with your blood, send them loopy. Once bitten, twice shy, he said. They won't fall for that trick a second time. So what are we going to do? Martha asked, exasperated. Abruptly, the doctor stood up, his chair screeching backwards. There's only one thing to do. Which is? I'm going to talk to them. I need you to watch the book. He pointed at the necklace. I'm trusting you to keep that safe while I'm gone. Don't forget, the Havokan agents will be after it. You'll have to keep on your toes. Everyone looked at him. Cool, said Thad. Can I come too? I, I want to see what these alien dudes look like. The doctor was already striding towards the door. This is strictly a solo mission. I need you lot to look after Martha. Make sure she goes easy on the cappuccinos. She has a tendency to run around naked when she's got too much caffeine inside her. Then he stepped out into the mist, closing the door behind him. The boys all looked at Martha expectantly. She rolled her eyes. He is, of course, joking. The doctor strolled into the central chamber, his hands in his pockets. Hello there, he said. How's it going? The Havokan drifted towards him, surrounded him. Their leader towered over him, hissing softly. It's all right, the doctor said. You don't have to pretend to look surprised to see me. You knew I was coming, and I know that you knew I was coming. I wouldn't have got this far if you hadn't wanted me to. Which is an encouraging sign. It indicates that you're willing to talk, or at least that you're naturally curious about me, which is almost as good. Unless you just want to kill me, of course, which isn't so good. Well, not for me, anyway. But um, I'm willing to take that risk. I mean, you're an intelligent bunch. You wouldn't just bump someone off for the hell of it. Uh, would you? He smiled up into the wide, squashy face of the Havokan leader. The alien made a number of odd gestures and seemingly arbitrary sounds. I told you, said the doctor, I'm here to talk. The Havokan leader made another series of gestures and sounds, which the doctor interpreted as a question, what do you want to talk about? He sensed a certain sneery attitude in the way the question was phrased, however, and suspected that a more literal translation would be something like, what could you possibly have to say that would be even remotely interesting to us? The doctor dropped the bonhomie and adopted a more business-like approach. I've got a proposition for you, he said. A once-in-a-lifetime offer. I'll take you back to your homeworld in my TARDIS. That way no one gets hurt. That's it. Simple and straightforward. Take it or leave it. The Havokan looked at each other. The doctor could almost sense the thought zipping between them. Then they began to jerk and shiver. 
Their long, taloned hands performed erratic little dances in the air. They opened their mouths and ground their jagged teeth together, creating cascading bursts of green sparks which dissolved like smoke on the air. The doctor folded his arms and frowned. I'm not laughing, he said. The Havokan leader pointed at him. It uttered a series of arcane words interspersed with grunts and hisses. It twizzled and stabbed at the air with its fingers. The doctor's face grew grim. He recognised a refusal when he saw one. In that case, he said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to stop you, so don't come crying to me later saying I didn't give you a chance. He shoved his hands back into his pockets and turned sharply on his heel. He was halfway across the chamber floor when a thick black tendril lashed out from the wall and twined itself round his ankle. It was instantly joined by another, which curled itself like a boa constrictor around his upper body, pinning his arms to his side. Within seconds, the doctor had been rendered immobile, half a dozen of the black vines having wrapped themselves around him. He was lifted up and turned around to face the hovering Havokan. Oh, now I'm really peeved, he said. Now you're definitely off my Christmas card list. Rick, exclaimed Amanda Pirelli, surprised. What are you doing home? It's complicated, he said. I I've brought someone home with me, Mom, is that okay? A frown deepened. What do you mean, someone? What's going on, Rick? Maybe be better if she explained, Rick said. She? What do you... Oh. Martha had been hovering outside the kitchen door, but she took Rick's fumbled introduction as a cue to make her entrance. As soon as she stepped into the room, she saw the expression on Rick's mum's face change from bewilderment to alarm. Hiya, Mrs. Pirelli she said. My name's Martha Jones. There's nothing to worry about. Rick's just been helping us out, that's all. Us? said Amanda, looking from Martha to Rick and then back again. What the hell is going on? Rick looked desperately at Martha. She said, I think maybe you better sit down first, Mrs. Pirelli. Amanda glared at her. I will not sit down. This is my house. Now will someone please tell me what's going on, or shall I call the police? Martha sighed and held up the necklace. It started when Rick and his friends dug this up, she said. Dug it up? What do you mean, dug it up? Dug it up from where? From under the tree, Mom, said Rick. The, the black tree at the bottom of the garden? Only, it's not really a tree, it's a... Let's not jump the gun, said Martha hastily. She nodded warily at the dining table in the centre of the kitchen floor. Do you mind if I sit down? Amanda pursed her lips. Martha was sure she was about to say, I'd rather you leave... But then she gave a brief nod and Martha sank gratefully onto a wooden dining chair. Martha and Rick told Amanda about the book, the tree, the mist, the Havokan. It was not easy. Although Rick's mother listened to the story mostly in silence, she did so with an increasingly incredulous expression. When they were done, she blurted, Do you honestly expect me to believe all of this? But it's true, Mum, said Rick. I swear. Nonsense, snapped Amanda. I don't know why this... this... Woman has been filling your head with such garbage, but I don't... And then a quiet voice from the doorway said, It's true, Mom. Every word. They all turned. Chris was standing there, hollow-eyed and haunted. He came into the room. I've seen one of them, he said. One of the aliens. He nodded at Martha. I talked to your friend, the doctor, about it. You've seen? Amanda said faintly. She slumped back against the kitchen counter, as if the strength had gone out of her legs. Where was this? 
right out there, said Chris, pointing at the kitchen window. Over by the tree. Rick looked at his brother with something like awe. What did it look like? he asked. Like something out of a nightmare, said Chris. Ten feet tall, thin, with a great big head and fingers as long as your arm. He shuddered. I don't ever want to see one again. Now do you believe us, Mrs. Pirelli? asked Martha. Rick's mother looked uncertain. Her hands were shaking. I don't know, she said. I mean, how can I? It's crazy. Why do you think's causing this mess? said Rick. And that earth tremor earlier, said Chris. That was the tree, I know it was. Martha was nodding. It was the doctor. He did that. Gave it a drop of his blood. It couldn't handle it. I need to sit down, said Amanda. Chris fetched his mother a chair and she plumped into it gratefully. So this book, she ventured, is called The Neck, Chris, said Martha. It's vital to them. It's my job to keep it safe. Our job, Rick corrected her. Safe from what? Amanda asked. The Havokan. Well, they're agents. The doctor said they'd send agents to retrieve it. And these agents would be... Anything, said Rick. The Havokan can make things come alive. At that precise moment, they heard a fluttering sound from the hallway outside the kitchen, and then something thumped against the door. The first thump was followed by several others in quick succession. Whatever the objects were, they were small but compact, and they had a bit of weight to them. Amanda rose slowly to her feet. What is that? she asked fearfully. Trouble, said Martha. How strong is that door? Pretty strong, said Chris. The rapid thumping abruptly ceased. There was a brief flurry of fluttering movement, like the sound of a bird trapped in a chimney. Moments later, this was followed by the tinkle of breaking glass and then silence. Have they gone? Rick whispered. Maybe, Martha replied. The words were barely out of her mouth when the kitchen window shattered. Amanda screamed and jumped up as broken glass fell into the sink and something black and fluttering entered the room. The black thing flew straight at Martha. She had a split second to register that it was a bat sporting a gaping mouth of needle-sharp teeth. And then she was swinging the necklace. More by luck than judgment, she hit the bat full on. There was a green flash, and the bat flopped lifelessly to the ground. They all stared incredulously at it for a moment, and then, in a high chalky voice, Amanda said, It's made of rubber! She began to laugh hysterically, and then abruptly stopped. Is it yours? Martha asked Rick. Rick nodded. I, I had a big bag of them. They were fifty for five dollars at Easy Mart. His voice tailed off as he realized what he was saying, and a look of horror crossed his face. Martha ran to the broken window and looked out. Oh my, she whispered. Swirling ten meters in the air like flecks of ash against the green mist were the rest of the bats. Even as she watched, they stopped their spinning and gathered together in a dense black mass. Then they began to stream downwards like an unspooling ribbon, heading straight for the house. They're coming! she yelled, twisting away from the window. Run! They all pelted towards the kitchen door. Rick had his hand on the handle and was pulling the door open when the rest of the kitchen windows exploded inwards. A second later, bats were swooping and diving towards them. As Chris swatted them with a frying pan and Martha fended them off with the necklace, Rick yanked open the kitchen door and all but shoved his mother ahead of him through the gap. Martha felt the needle teeth of the bats scratching her hands and threw up her arms to stop them plunging their fangs into her face. 
Chris grabbed the collar of her leather jacket and yanked her backwards through the door. Martha had the presence of mind to grab the handle with her free hand and pull the door shut behind her. One bat, caught half in and half out of the closing door, was crushed into a mangled lump of rubber and fell to the floor bloodless and inert. Around a dozen bats had made it out of the kitchen with them. They ran up the stairs and along the upper landing. Chris leaped and whacked a bat with the frying pan as it swooped towards Martha's face. Then he was grabbing her jacket once again, pulling her into the bathroom. When they were inside, Rick slammed the bolt into place. The few bats still pursuing them thumped ineffectually against the door for the next fifteen seconds or so, then stopped. Once again there was silence. With shaky hands, Chris put the frying pan carefully on the floor and wiped sweat from his forehead. I don't think there's much we can do now except wait, said Martha. Wait for what? Amanda wanted to know. Martha looked at her. The doctor, she said firmly. Shh, said Chris. His ear was pressed to the door. I think I hear something. They all fell silent and listened. Faintly, but getting louder, they could hear an odd sound. It was a rhythmic series of dry, rattling clicks, like small pieces of wood or stone being wrapped together. What is it? whispered Rick. Martha licked her lips. I, I might be wrong. I, I hope I'm wrong. But it sounds to me like bones, she said. The rattle-click of movement came up the stairs, along the landing, and stopped outside the door. In some ways, the few seconds of silence that followed its arrival were even worse than the approaching sounds had been. Chris stepped back from the door, staring at it warily. Martha and Rick exchanged a glance. Amanda retreated to the back of the room, pressing her hands to her mouth as if to stifle a rising scream. Then there was a crash, and a hairline crack appeared in one of the door's upper wooden panels. Martha looked around desperately for something to defend herself with, but the best weapon available was the one she was already holding. She raised the necklace above her head, readying herself for action. Another crash, and the crack widened, slivers of wood falling inward. There wasn't much the four of them could do except watch the thing smash its way through the door. With each blow, more of the panels splintered and collapsed. Finally, a sizable chunk of wood fell onto the bathroom floor. Immediately, a hand and part of an arm thrust its way through the jagged hole it had created. Just as Martha had feared, the hand was white, fleshless, skeletal. She shuddered at the brittle scraping the twig-like fingers made as they scuttled across the wood towards the bolt. Swallowing her revulsion, she stepped forward and brought the necklace down as if to squash a bug, hoping to disconnect the hand from its spindly wrist, perhaps even to pulverize it. The creature, however, seemed to anticipate her attack and snatched its hand back through the hole just in time. The momentum of Martha's swing made her stumble forward and drop onto one knee, her face within reach of the hole in the door. The living skeleton on the other side suddenly bent and lunged forward, filling the gap with its chalk-white face its empty eye sockets level with Martha's eyes. The skull's lipless jaw creaked wide open and, though it had no vocal cords, the creature hissed at her. Its breath, how could it have breath? It had no lungs, smelled of grave mould and the dank, sulphurous odour of the Havokan's lair. Martha recoiled, sprawling on her back on the bathroom floor, coughing and spluttering. Even as she was pushing herself back up to a sitting position, the creature was reaching through the hole in the door once again. Stop it! she yelled, but it was too late. The bony fingers wrapped themselves around the bolt and tugged it from its socket. 
A second later, the door swung open, and there stood the skeleton, bones clicking and creaking as it shifted its weight, horribly, impossibly alive. The necris was lying on the floor a few inches from Martha's hand. With frightening speed, the skeleton rushed forward, reached down, and grabbed it. No! Martha shouted, and made a snatch for it herself, but her fingers closed on empty air. As the skeleton straightened up with its prize, Martha was half aware of Chris stepping over her, his hands outstretched. She looked up and saw that he was holding a toilet roll in one hand, a cigarette lighter in the other. She saw him light the toilet roll and then thrust it between two of the skeleton's ribs, jamming it in place. The vertebrae in the skeleton's neck clicked as it tilted its skull to regard the burning wad of paper. Then, to Martha's astonishment, the creature burst into flames. It burned surprisingly quickly, fire racing along its network of bones, engulfing it within seconds. It opened its mouth in a soundless scream as it shriveled and blackened, collapsing in on itself. Its spine snapped, and its burning skull tumbled between its charred collarbones and into the crumbling ribcage. The necris dropped from its lifeless hands and into Martha's arms. Rick and Chris ran forward with wet towels and doused the flames before they could spread and set fire to the house. They smothered the heap of bones and trampled them into burning ash. Seconds later, all that was left of the skeleton was black mush and a hazy pall of greenish smoke. Chris turned to face Martha as she rose to her feet. He had a smudge of soot on his nose and was looking pleased with himself. <laughs> I, I remembered the bats, he said. They were made of rubber, even when they were alive. And it suddenly made me realize what the skeleton was made of. Ah, she said. She looked at the wet towels and the black gunk dripping out from underneath. Paper, she said. Yeah, well, cardboard. Though I'm not sure how something made of cardboard can smash its way through a door. <laughs> Evoke magic, Martha said. Science, I mean. What I want to know, Christopher, Amanda said, stepping forward, is why you had a cigarette lighter in your pocket. Suddenly Chris looked like a little boy who'd been caught raiding the cookie jar in the dead of night. Uh, he said. Etta was getting worried. The doctor should have returned by now. If I'm not back by three, he had told her earlier, it means, or it probably means, though then again it could just be that, in plain English, if you please, doctor, she had said imperiously. Well, it will almost certainly mean that the Havokan are not, what's the phrase, open to negotiation. And what should I do then? She asked. Call the police? Nah, there'd be about as much use as a sherbet umbrella. Your best bet would be to pack up and get out of town as quickly as you can. No, no, hang on. First, cancel the Halloween carnival, initiate some sort of evacuation procedure, and then pack up and get out of town as quickly as you can. See ya! Three o'clock, he had said. She looked at the big metal clock on her kitchen wall, which had been chopping off the seconds of her life for the past twenty-five years. It read five past three, though, even as she glanced at it, it clunked on another minute. How long should she wait? Perhaps the negotiations, as he had called them, were more involved than he had anticipated. Ten minutes later, she stood up. Right then, she said. She had come to a decision. It was the only possible decision she could come to. Etta didn't think she was a particularly brave soul, but neither was she the kind of person who would leave a friend in the lurch. She wouldn't flee, as the doctor had advised, and there wasn't time to fetch help, which meant there was only one course of action open to her. She would launch a rescue mission. 
Arming herself with a torch, she descended the basement steps and lowered herself gingerly into the storage space beneath the floor. The metal door in the side wall was still ajar. She tugged it open and shone her torch into a cramped black tunnel. Rotting timbers irregularly spaced looked to be the only things preventing the tunnel from collapsing in on itself. Etta shuddered and took a deep breath. Then she got down on her hands and knees and crawled inside. Ow! said the doctor. Every time he moved, even just a little bit, the vine securing him flashed green and gave him a zap of energy. Can't you turn the juice down on this thing? he called. It tickles. The Havokan ignored him. They had been ignoring him for the past twenty minutes. They were drifting about their central chamber, describing symbols in the air, occasionally chanting or muttering in their breathy, childlike voices. Their movements seemed arbitrary, but the doctor knew they were conjuring something, that their actions were far more purposeful than they appeared. He had tried various methods to get the Havokan to listen to him, but they were having none of it. Perhaps now was the time to take a gamble, therefore, to mix a few home truths with a dose of good old-fashioned bluffing. All right, he said. Cards on the table. Your lot don't exist anymore. Your people were banished to the deep darkness by the Eternals. The only reason they didn't find your little group was because you were already under the earth, dormant. You've been there for thousands of years, you've become legends on this planet, part folklore, you've seeped into the nightmares of a thousand generations of children... He took a deep breath. Here came the bluffing part. But the irony is, if you get this creaky old ship of yours working again, it'll be like a beacon to the Eternals. They'll find you and they'll stamp you out. Is that what you really want? A final glorious ascent into the heavens and then splat? Bye-bye, Havoken. Because that's what'll happen unless you listen to me. I can take you somewhere in my TARDIS where the Eternals will leave you alone. Well, they'll let you live out your lives in peace. So come on, boys, what do you say? Do this thing my way and everyone's a winner. Still they ignored him, and they ignored him some more. The doctor sighed, scowled. All right, he muttered. Please yourselves. Even while he had been talking, his mind had been working constantly, furiously trying to think of a way out. He knew there had to be one. There always was. It was just a case of working it out before it was too late. Something to his left caught his eye, a glimmer of light, different to the swamp-like iridescence that pulsed and flickered and bubbled in the Havokan's lair. As surreptitiously as he could, the doctor glanced in that direction. He didn't know whether to feel heartened or dismayed to see Etta appear in the cavernous entrance to the central chamber. He was about to mouth at her to turn off her torch when she noticed the Havokan for the first time and dropped the torch out of sheer fright. It landed on the ground and broke. A black vine immediately snaked from the wall and snatched it up. Green sparks flew as the vine tightened on the torch, crunching it into mangled pieces of plastic and metal. A nearby Havokan, apparently alerted by the sound, drifted across. Etta could only stand there, transfixed with shock, as the alien loomed over her. The doctor clenched his teeth, waiting for the inevitable. But then, to his astonishment, the Havokan drifted away, as if the old lady wasn't worth its attention. Why had it simply ignored her? Was it something to do with her age? Her lack of physical threat? And then it came to him. Psst, he said. Etta hadn't spotted him yet. 
She was too overawed by the crawling walls and the Havokan themselves. She turned her head and blinked in his direction. Backlit by the pulsing green light, the walls writhing around her, she looked endearingly out of place. She dithered a moment, glanced at the Havokan again. The doctor flicked his head in a come here gesture and received another painful zap for his troubles. Her eyes and mouth wide in terrified awe, moving almost as if she was shell-shocked, Etta plodded across to him. The Havokan paid her no attention whatsoever. The doctor almost laughed out loud. As you can see, I got a bit tied up, he whispered. Etta stared at him. Are those things really aliens? I feel as if I'm dreaming. Yep, they're aliens, said the doctor casually. And so am I, and so are you, come to that. Rule aliens together. Why are they ignoring me? she asked. The doctor grinned. They don't see you as human, he said. You and your ancestors have absorbed so much of Oaken energy over the past couple of hundred years that they see you as part of themselves, part of their ship. I reckon when they turned the cats on us yesterday, you could have just stood there and they'd have run straight past you. Now he tells me, said Etta dryly, making the doctor grin again. So what do I do to get you out of here? Well, if I'm right, said the doctor, you should be able to make these things release me just by thinking about it. Put your hands on the vines, close your eyes, and command them to let go with your mind. Believe you can do it. Think like a Havokan. All right, I'll give it a try, said Etta dubiously. After a moment's hesitation, she placed her hands on a couple of the vines entwined around the doctor and squeezed her eyes closed. For a minute or more, she stood motionless, holding her breath, and then she blurted, Nothing's happening. Try harder, urged the doctor. Imagine the vines loosening, going limp and floppy. You're the boss, Etta, not them. You're the one in control. Just be your natural stroppy self and you'll be laughing. Hmm, she said. But she squeezed her eyes closed again and scrunched up her face, redoubling her efforts. The doctor cheered her on silently, and after a few seconds, he felt the vines beginning to loosen. He pulled one arm free, then the other. Seconds later, the vines simply sagged from him, slumping to the floor and crawling sluggishly back to the wall. Oh, top job, Mrs. Helligan, he whispered. Now, let's scarper before they notice. They began to hurry across the central chamber towards the door. They were halfway across when they heard what in her Vulcan speak amounted to cries of alarm, a mass of agitated, sibilant whispers. Keep going, the doctor muttered to Etta and turned round. The Havokan were flowing towards him, taloned hands outstretched. More vines were detaching themselves from the walls, snaking in his direction. The doctor whipped his sonic from his pocket, turned it on, and held the business end to his wrist. Stop! he shouted, and amazingly, everything did. The Havokan hovered in the air, facing him. The vines twitched and curled, but they stayed where they were. Either let me go or I'll open this vein here and now, he said. You might have worked out how to cope with a few drops of the hard stuff, but a whole armful of top-grade diesel in a lead-free engine? Very nasty. And don't think for a second that I won't sacrifice myself to cripple this ship and save the people up there, because I've already got far too many deaths on my conscience and I'll do whatever it takes not to get any more. He glared at the Havokan, relaying through his thought waves and his body language that he meant every word. From the corner of his eye, he saw Etta hurrying away. The Havokan regarded him for several long seconds, drifting in the dank subterranean air, like flotsam on the tide. Then their leader made a dismissive gesture. Go. 
The doctor nodded slowly and backed away. Sonic still pressed to his wrist. Wise decision, he said. The lights from the carnival showground shone faintly through the thick green mist. The doctor had arrived at the Pirellis, having made an educated guess that Martha would be there after trying the hotel first. He had listened to her account of the attempts that her Vulcan had made to get their property back, but Martha had sensed he was distracted, and as soon as he could he had shut himself away with the necris, saying that he needed some time to study it, to discover some chink in the Havokan's armour. Now they were passing through the entrance arch and into the showground, paying their entry fee as they went. Children from three upwards were running around, shrieking and laughing, dragging their parents from pillar to post, resplendent in their many and varied Halloween costumes. Wherever Martha looked, she saw miniature witches and demons, zombies and vampires, skeletons and ghosts. She, the doctor and the boys, strode through the crowds of excited children and subdued adults, suspicious and alert. A rucksack bobbed up and down on his back as the doctor sniffed the air at regular intervals. So far so good, said Martha. Hmm, he said non-committally. As they passed the hot dog stand, a voice from behind them said, Hi! Turning, they saw Thad in his mummy-stroke-ghoul costume. His body wrapped in bandages, his face deathly white aside from his lips and the hollows around his eyes which were black. All at once the doctor stiffened, drawing himself to his full height. Something wicked, she asked. This way comes, he confirmed in a murmur. He bared his teeth at her like an ape. Itching again? Oh, yes, he said. The eerie chanting of the Havokan rose to a crescendo. Their fingers twitched and flickered as they scratched fiery green signals in the air. The black vines thrashed, rippling with thick, soupy clots of glaucous light. The aliens were gathered in a circle, at the centre of which a crackling vortex was beginning to form, a spinning tunnel composed of green smoke. One of the Havokan drifted forward, clothes flapping in black tatters around it, and entered the vortex. The instant it had disappeared, a second Havokan moved forward and then a third. Oddly, however, even though the number of aliens left in the chamber was dwindling, their chanting was not... It echoed around the chamber as though the very walls were imbued with it, as though their incantation, ancient and powerful and deadly, had taken on a terrible life of its own. A wind sprang up around the showground, making the plastic awnings of the various stalls flap and billow, the loops of coloured lights rattle like bones. The doctor, teeth clenched, hair blowing, ranged from side to side, peering up into the misty sky. Suddenly he pointed... Here it comes, he shouted. Martha followed the direction of his finger. Something was happening to the mist. Slowly it was beginning to spin, like water running down a plug hole. The eye of the vortex was maybe thirty metres above them, but at its centre, instead of darkness, she could see a pulsing, rhythmic glow. It was faint at first, but as she watched it grew steadily brighter and began to expand outwards. It was as though something was coming some celestial visitation approaching through a tunnel of light. Everyone had seen it now. Everyone had stopped what they were doing to stare up, awestruck and fearful. The only movement came from the fairground rides on the far side of the field. The only sound was the music still blasting from the loudspeakers, an inane accompaniment to a spectacle as breathtaking as it was ominous. 
The glow increased until it was a ball of blazing light, a miniature sun, which illuminated the night sky and cast a sickly pallor across the proceedings below. The townsfolk began to murmur in fear, to gather their children close. All at once, multiple tendrils of green light erupted from the centre of the vortex. Each of the tendrils sought out a different child, encircling their victims in crackling loops of luminescence. As the green fire skittered up and down their bodies, the children stood rigid, their faces, those that weren't concealed behind masks, expressionless, their eyes staring ahead. Some parents screamed or began to cry. Their kids, however, seemed oblivious to the anguish of their parents. Martha felt a hand tugging at the sleeve of her leather jacket, an anxious voice calling her name. Turning, she looked into Rick's wide-eyed face. Look at Thad, he said. Like most of the other kids, Thad was encased in a funnel of shimmering light. Also like the others, he was standing immobile, his expression slack, mouth hanging open. But as Martha looked at him, she realized something else was happening too. Slowly, subtly, Thad was beginning to change. His face was becoming wizened, his skin turning to parchment. The bandages around him were tightening, aging, acquiring a pattern of mold and dust. The very shape of his body was altering, his bones elongating, his hands twisting into claws. His skull was stretching, his brow getting heavier. He was starting to hunch forward like an ape. Doc! Martha began, but then she realized a similar transformation was overcoming all the other children. Kids dressed as werewolves were growing taller, more bestial, their fingers lengthening into talons, real fur springing up on their bodies. Those dressed as witches were turning into withered crones, their hideous, bent-nosed faces developing warts and boils. Those who had come as vampires were becoming sallow, their incisors lengthening to sharp points. It was happening all around the showground. Children were actually turning into the creatures they had dressed up as. They had just one common factor. The eyes of each were glowing a vivid, putrescent green. The changes took maybe fifteen seconds. Then the lassoes of light round the children's bodies withdrew, snapping back into the blazing eye of the vortex, like a vast creature retracting its tentacles. Horrified parents backed away from their kids. Monsters began to snarl and roar and hiss as they straightened up. Some raised their claws and looked around, taking a renewed and deadly interest in their surroundings. Oh my God, Martha said, feeling sick. They're going to get their kids to kill their parents, aren't they? Their parents and then each other, said the doctor grimly. Adults were running, screaming from their children, who were pursuing them with murderous intent. A huge spider was scaling the metal framework of a now motionless ferris wheel to reach the terrified adults trapped in the upper cars. Over by the main marquee, a group of adults were fending off a ravening horde of monsters with tables and chairs. Nearby, Rick was lying on the ground with Thad's hands round his throat, whilst Chris had his arms wrapped round Thad's chest and was trying to drag him away. Thad was drooling and snapping, his teeth long and yellow. If Chris hadn't been holding him, Martha had no doubt he would have been trying to rip Rick's throat out. She looked around for something to use and spotted a second-hand bookstool. She crossed to it, grabbed the biggest hardback she could find, then ran back over to the three boys and swung the book at Thad's head. It connected with a hefty thunk, and Thad's grip loosened on Rick's throat. She was about to deliver another blow when a voice shouted, Stop! It was the doctor. Don't hurt him, he said. Whatever they look like, remember they're still only children.
What are we supposed to do? Gasped Chris, still struggling with the half-dazed Thad. Reason with him? Let me, said the doctor, dropping to his knees beside Rick's prone body and facing the bandaged ghoul that Thad had become. He reached out with both hands, then quickly snatched one back as Thad twisted and snapped at his fingers like a dog. He blew in Thad's face to distract him, then tried again, both hands snaking into grip Thad's thrashing head. He pressed his thumbs into Thad's temples, and immediately the ferocious expression slipped from the boy's face. His eyes closed, and he slumped forward in Chris's arms. Lower him to the ground gently, said the doctor, then swiftly examined Rick's throat. You okay, Ricky boy? Rick swallowed and winced, then nodded groggily. Fine, he croaked. Good man. The doctor stood up and swung his rucksack from his back. He tore it open and lifted out the necris. With one blast of the sonic, the iron band securing it broke into two pieces and fell to the ground. The doctor held the necris above his head. This stops now, he yelled, pressing the still active sonic against the necris's cover. The fleshy material began to ripple and shudder as though in pain. Show yourselves, Havokan, or your precious book gets it. There was a bubbling and a boiling from the center of the vortex, and suddenly there they were, a dozen or more Havokan materializing out of thin air. They hovered ten meters above the ground, in a wide circle around the doctor, tall and spindly, like great black carrion crows. Rick gasped at his first sight of the aliens and dropped to his knees. Chris moaned and cowered in fear. Martha clenched her fists, but stood her ground, shoulder to shoulder with the doctor. Arms raised aloft, the doctor shouted, Right, this is the deal. You put an end to this slaughter now, or I'll destroy the necris. And don't think I can't or I won't, because I can and I will. I've broken through every one of its defences, and all I have to do is increase the sonic frequency by another few levels, and your indispensable little starter motor will be dust. As long as my sonic is in contact with your necris, you can't do a thing. You can only listen. He paused briefly and looked around the circle of Havokan, his expression steely. Then he said, You put an end to this now and I'll find you another source of fuel. One that doesn't involve killing people. Soon as the ship's ready, we'll clear the town and you can vamoose. This way you get your necris back and you get to keep your ship. Of course, you'll have to keep an eye out for the Eternals whilst you're up there, but that's your problem. The Havokan regarded him impassively, not responding. Well, come on, the doctor shouted. I haven't got all... Something swooped from the sky, seeming to appear from nowhere. It snatched the book from the doctor's hand. Martha saw that it was some kind of sprite or evil fairy, doubtless another of the transformed children. She looked back at the doctor still not entirely sure what had happened, and saw an expression of horror on his face. No! he shouted. The Havokan leader gave a triumphant hiss and performed a magician-like flourish, whose meaning was patently obvious. You lose. The Doctor and Martha could do nothing but watch as the sprite delivered the necris into the Havokan leader's hands. The alien opened its mouth wide in what Martha could only think of as a gloating grin and muttered a quick incantation. A fizzing green light enveloped the necris, and it faded away. To reappear seconds later in the hollow on top of the central dais in the main chamber of the Havokan ship. Instantly the mass of claw-like roots fringing the hollow clamped into place over the book.
Martha felt numb. They had lost. The doctor had made the silliest, most fundamental mistake by not looking behind him, and suddenly it was all over. She looked up at him. His face was somber, almost wistful. You really shouldn't have done that, he murmured to the Havoken. Then he held up his sonic screwdriver. The Necris convulsed, sending a shockwave through the Havoken ship. Then it began to absorb energy, to suck the already thin lifeblood from the veins of the vessel at an incredible speed. Ripples of energy flowed from the thrashing vines. The central dais pulsed and shimmered as the ship's entire stock of reserve power converged on it. Like a heart engorged with blood, the necris began to swell and rupture. As it absorbed more power than it was designed to hold, it started to glow fiercely. A high-pitched whine filled the Havokan ship, a whine that escalated rapidly into what sounded like a scream of unbearable pain. The ring of transformed children closing in on the Doctor, Martha, Rick and Chris suddenly stopped. Some of the creatures stood stock still. Others began to sway and stagger about in confusion. One child, which had become a hulking Frankenstein's monster with a scarred patchwork face and clomping lead boots, raised its hands to its head and dropped to its knees with a groan. As Martha watched, she saw the greenish luster fade from the children's eyes and then a ripple of energy leave each of their bodies and spiral upwards into the vortex of mist. The instant the energy left them, each of the kids reverted to how they had been before the Havokan spell had consumed them. As they became themselves again, they looked around, dazed and shocked, as if waking from a collective nightmare. A few burst into tears. Some cried out for their parents. Martha watched the Frankenstein's monster peel the mask from its face and realized it was Rick's friend, Scott. Meanwhile, the Havokan were beginning to thrash about like black sheets in a strong wind, to wail in their thin, childlike voices. The doctor watched them unblinkingly, his face like thunder, Sonic still held out before him, its piercing warbles splicing the air. The thrashing of the Havokan became increasingly more frenzied, their huge, pale heads beginning to blacken and shrivel, their eyes sinking into their sockets, their many-jointed fingers curling up like burning twigs. Finally, their bodies began to crumble away, like vampires in sunlight, and within seconds, they were nothing but ribbons of black ash streaming into the centre of the vortex. Then the green mist began rapidly to disperse. It too drained into the vortex, the radiance at the centre of which gradually faded and shrank until there was nothing left but darkness. Once the mist had cleared, the vortex itself dwindled and died, simply petering out like a spent tornado. Suddenly Martha realised that for the first time since they had arrived, she could see stars twinkling in the night sky. She took a deep breath, relishing the cold, clean sharpness of the air. She turned to the doctor and was about to speak when she heard and felt a deep subterranean rumble. Almost immediately, the night sky some distance away was illuminated by a harsh white glow, which surged upwards before disintegrating into a million greenish sparks that winked as they fell slowly back to earth. What was that? asked Rick in a small, shocked voice. 
Martha began to shake her head, and then all at once it came to her. It was the Havokan ship, wasn't it, Doctor? The tree. You did something to the book, didn't you? Drained off their energy. The Doctor, his face grim, turned off his sonic and pocketed it before giving her a curt nod. Never underestimate the power of the printed word, he said. End of story. The doctor and Martha stood with the Pirelli family, staring into the ash-filled crater at the bottom of the garden. There was no trace whatsoever of the black tree. Not a single twig had survived. I don't believe this, Tony Pirelli kept saying, shining his torch down into the hole. I just don't believe it. Rick looked up at the doctor with something like awe. What did you do? he asked. I subverted the kinetic flow of energy generated by the necris, the doctor replied. It caused the ship to implode. He sounded almost ashamed. Huh? said Rick. He made their spells run backwards, said Martha. He undid everything the Havokan had done. So this necris thing, said Chris, you changed it with your little torch? It wasn't hard, said the doctor almost apologetically. It was just a bit of basic tinkering. The hard bit was convincing the Havokan they'd beaten you, said Martha. You certainly fooled me. The doctor shrugged. They'd have been suspicious if I'd just given the necklace back to them, even if I'd made it sound like an exchange for the lives of the townspeople. They'd have checked it over and found out what I'd done. I knew our only chance was to make them think they'd outsmarted me. But what if they'd agreed to your terms? said Martha. Would you have fixed the necklace for them and let them destroy the town? He looked at her and his eyes suddenly seemed as black and depthless as space. I gave them their chance, he said evenly. They didn't take it. A voice came floating out of the darkness beyond the crater. Sounds like we might be in for a spot of subsidence, thanks to you, Doctor. Etta, said the Doctor delightedly. Etta was carrying a large plate which she held out towards the group. Who's for a Halloween cookie? The cookies were in the shape of bats, coated with black icing with red dots for eyes. I think I'll pass if you don't mind, Martha said with a shudder. Me too, said Rick, and then caught a warning look from his parents. Then again, maybe not. Lovely, said the doctor, shoving most of the cookie into his mouth. He made exaggerated yum-yum noises and grabbed another from the plate. Then, after a moment's hesitation, a third, which he dropped into his pocket. Right, he said. Well, better go. Things to do, people to see. Goodbye all. Come on, Martha. Without waiting for a reply, he turned and strode away, leaving Martha smiling sheepishly round at the group. Sorry, she said. He doesn't like goodbyes. Well, I better... Uh... She wafted a hand vaguely in the doctor's direction. Etta smiled. Go on, dear. You catch up with your spaceman. And tell him... Thank you. On behalf of us all. Tell him thank you for saving our town. I will, said Martha, and raised a hand. Well, bye everyone. Maybe I'll see you again sometime. She doubted she would, though. That was what life with the doctor was like. Meet people, share extraordinary times, move on. Wait up, doctor, 
she shouted, jogging after his gangly silhouette. And although she wanted to, she didn't look back. Not once. Doctor Who, Forever Autumn, by Mark Morris, was read by Will Thorpe and is published by BBC Audiobooks. Books.